So good to be with all of you guys as we continue our journey uh, through this unfolding story of God. So I, I don't know if you've uh, heard, maybe, maybe you have or have not, um, but apparently the Cubs won the World Series this year, 2016. Who knew? I, I think the um, movie makers of um, uh, 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 Back to the Future knew, apparently, so that's good. So the Cubs won. Uh, who of you stayed up to watch the last game despite it being rained out in the seventh inning and going until four in the morning, right? Look at that, like a bunch of hands. Throughout the weekend, lots and lots of hands have gone up. And it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because as far as baseball goes, I mean, there are uh, that, that group of people in our country, a fairly large group that love baseball. Uh, but this seems to have transcended that whole world. And just about everyone you talk about, if you mention, hey, did you know that the, the Cubs were uh, in the World Series running and they, and they won the World Series? Everybody knows. Yeah, I heard. That's so awesome. When the rest of the year, nobody really cares about, or that group doesn't really care about baseball, but this particular game we all cared about, whether you cared about baseball or not, right? Why is that? Why is it that this particular World Series, a bunch of us stayed up to watch a game that we generally don't really care about, and then a few of us stayed up to watch because we've always watched every year, and that's how it goes, right? The reason that this particular year was so unique and, and had such a broad audience attracted to this was because the last time the Cubs won a World Series, none of us were alive because it was 108 years ago. 108 years ago. And so because of that, the, the Cubs were this underdog, this, this, this group of people that, that has not won in as long as we can remember. And so if they win, that is a, it shouldn't have happened, but it did moment, right? Don't we love those moments? Where the underdog, the, the person that ha did not have the advantage or, or did not have uh, what they needed or did not have the talent or did not have the ability, they should not have been able to. And then they do and you're like, yes, in every Olympic Games or in every sports event or in, in any part of the world where we are trying to excel, when that underdog, that person that shouldn't, couldn't, wouldn't, did, then we make a movie out of it, don't we? Because it feels so good, doesn't it? Feels so good. And it felt so good to see somebody that hasn't for so long, that has such a track record, and then they did. And we all celebrate, and it's awesome. Except for very few of us that didn't like the Cubs. But you don't even want to say you didn't, right? You don't even want to go, I didn't, because this year, it's okay, we all do. In the same light, when the opposite story is true, it is the opposite of exciting and joyful. When somebody or when a group of people that have every reason to get it right, every reason to succeed, they've had every advantage, they've received every, uh, every possible um, uh, hand into what they need, they, they have all the talent, they have all the ability, they, they are above everybody else in skill, and th there's, you look at them and you go, this is the person or these are the people that without a shadow of a doubt are going to take this. And then because they are either self-absorbed or self-centered or make foolish decisions or utilize their gifting, their talent, their ability uh, for, for things that are not good and because of that they fail, then we consider that a grand tragedy, don't we? We feel so deeply saddened by that when you see somebody or you see a group of people that really should, that really could, that, that there's no reason why they won't. And then they don't because they're foolish. And you're like, no, no, 
and we are brokenhearted over that. Just this last week in the same world, the baseball world, star pitcher for the Marlins, right? I mean, liked by his teammates, liked by the other teams, incredible pitcher, doing incredibly well, and he crashes a boat into a wall because his blood alcohol level is high, and he has cocaine in his blood, and, and you just look at that, and you're like, no, man, you feel so sad. You feel so brokenhearted, because in a world where you have it, and then you choose silly things and it's squandered. We just feel so deeply saddened by that. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, right? So we're in the book of Romans right now. And he's writing to the church in Rome because he's going to move his headquarters from Antioch to Rome. He is a citizen of Rome, born that way. So he has the opportunity to live in the, in the heart of the Roman Empire. And he believes, as he rightly sees, that strategically to carry the gospel into Rome itself, to see the gospel expand out of Rome into the Roman Empire is by far the most strategic move in his current context. So he's going to move his headquarters to Rome, but he did not plant the church in Rome. He did not disciple the church in Rome. So before he moves to Rome, he wants to clarify in a letter to them exactly what he knows to be true about the gospel so that when he gets there, he doesn't have to weed through all of that. So in this particular book, uh, his primary purpose in writing the book of Romans is to clarify the intricacies and the simplicities of the gospel so that they are all on the same page. And he's writing into an environment that is ripe for this particular letter because the environment he's writing into in Rome in the church is complex. It has a mixture of people from a Jewish heritage as well as people from a Gentile heritage. So that is complicated enough. But also in this particular case, remember, the Jewish people led the church at first as the Gentiles entered in. Then they were kicked out of Rome, so the Gentiles took over leadership. And then five years later, the Jewish people came back in, and now they are with the Gentiles trying to figure out who is in fact leading the church. And so you have the complications of the two worlds, the complications of the mixed leadership. And Paul, what he's going to do, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is he is going to utilize that context to demonstrate some of the core realities of the gospel that we need to have clear in our heads if we are going to understand the magnitude of the grace of God. So we cannot understand the magnitude of the grace and wonder of God unless we understand the intricacies and the simplicities of some of these gospel realities. And Paul is using this mixed world in the church right now to demonstrate a particularly important point that we need to understand about the gospel. What he's saying in the early part of the book of Romans, chapter 1, 2, and 3, is this. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what you bring to the table in terms of your righteousness. It doesn't matter what system you live under. It doesn't matter what heritage you have. It doesn't matter what you in of yourself bring to the table of God when you bring it. It will fail when compared to the holiness and the righteousness of God. And therefore, when it does, you will rightly be judged and you will be a recipient of God's wrath. Okay, that's what he's trying to do in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And he's using the Gentiles and the Jews and all of their history and all of their background to show us and them, I don't really care who you are, if you bring yourself to the table and your stuff, 
it is not going to go well for you when it comes to God's righteousness and holiness. And he's doing this because he is preparing us to understand how the grace of God works and why the grace of God is what it is and is necessary for us. Now, in the most recent part of chapters 1, 2, and 3, we've been in chapters 2, where Paul, remember, is having a side conversation with a group of people outside the church, essentially allowing the church in Rome to listen into the side conversation that he's not actually having, but he's having for their sake. And he's talking to the Greek moralists, and he's talking to the Jewish legalists. And what he's doing in that is saying, you all out there that come to the table with your systems of righteousness, the Greek moralist with the Roman law and the, and the societal rightness and don't do these things and do these things, then we can get along together. Essentially, they're coming with politics and they're coming with laws and they're com coming with systems. And the Jewish legalists with the law revealed from God to the Jewish people long ago on, the Mount, uh, on Mount Sinai. So they're coming with their systems and the way they live in those systems and they're going, look, look, we're, we're good. Each of them thinking the other is not, but both of them thinking they are. So Paul is writing to them saying, man, you, you, you bring this stuff to the table, but look where it lands you. And he's kind of said to both those groups, you're not cutting it. You're not living by the very system you bring to the table. So how is it you're bringing your system saying, look, this will save me, but you're not even living by it. Now, in so doing, the last little part that we've been in in chapter 2, he's spoken specifically to the Jewish legalist. And he said, look, you are living essentially just like the rest of the world, disobeying the very law you bring to the table. Now, if you were a Jewish person during the time of Paul, and you did not know Jesus, you were a Jewish legalist still living under the system, you could easily sit at this table having this discussion with Paul and say this, uh-uh-uh-uh, no, 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 I totally disagree. I have been a very, very good Jewish person. I have lived by the law. And when you say, oh my goodness, you're not living by the law, you are not talking to me because I have lived by the law. So what Paul's about to do is he's about to say, let's say, for sake of argument, that you're right. You're getting the, the law basically right. I mean, you're just breaking it some of the time as an individual person. You there, you can say, I'm, I'm kind of doing this pretty well. Let me talk to you for a minute about another layer that demonstrates our inability to do whatever is right before God, right? I'm going to layer this out now and show you something super cool that's super sad that's going to cause you to go, oh, I didn't even make it there. So let's turn to the, uh, to the book of Romans and I'll show you what I'm talking about. We're going to go to Romans chapter 2 and we're going to go to verse 17. So if you're using one of the Bibles we provide, it's page 1041, 1041. Or if you have a smart device or one of your own Bibles in paper, you can go to Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Now, in, uh, when we get to the uh, end of verse 16, remember, if you're the Jewish legalist listening into this, you are on the defensive now because Paul has essentially just said, you're not cutting it. And you're like going, ah, 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 no, 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 no. I, I think I've got this. I, I don't agree with you. And you're kind of on the defensive. And then Paul writes this next sentence and unpacks what he's about to unpack. Listen to what he says, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know His will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. 
Isn't that a beautiful sentence? See, what that sentence describes is everything that that Jewish person would have said they are. This is capturing the beautiful identity of the Jewish person in the time of Paul and the history of the Jewish people. Okay, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law, that's good. You believe the law and you rely on it as you were meant to. And you boast in God. Isn't that a good thing? Wouldn't you say boasting in God is a good thing? I'd say that's a good thing. That's what you ought to do. If you're part of the people of God relying on the law of God, then you boast in God and you know his will. How awesome is that? Not only do you know his will, but uh, approve what is excellent. You actually approve what is excellent. Wow. And because all of this, because you are instructed from the law. So here's what he's saying. Boy, if you're one of the people that are the recipients of the law of God, the recipients of the oracles of God, you are given the will of God, you've lived in that, you approve of that, and you carry that, I'm talking to you. So now Paul has told us exactly the people group he's talking to, and he has clarified their God-given identity. This is who you are. Wow. See, now as a Jewish person, I'm kind of going like this. That's better. That's what I'm talking about. Now you're understanding it, Paul. Now you're getting who I am. This is why I'm at the table saying I'm okay because I'm this person. Look, look what he says next. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, I mean, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Isn't that beautiful? So, my dear Jewish friend, Paul says, if you're here and you know you are the recipient of the great rescue of God from Egypt, pulled into the promised land, given the law, you now live in that wonder and you are indeed the one uh, among the people of God that knows the oracles of God. And because you do, you go into the world and you spread light into the darkness. You teach the little children how beautiful, right? You instruct the foolish because you, you have the law of God. Wow. Wow, that's cool. What's he clarifying here? First he clarified their identity. Now he's clarifying their vocation or their calling, right? Whatever you want to call it. What were the Jewish people given to be and to do? Okay? The Jewish people, the people of God, the category, the people of God, a holy nation set apart for God for what? So that he might make himself known to them. They might be the recipients of his oracles, his prophecies, his knowledge, all that he is, his righteousness, his protection. And then in that, they were supposed to go out into the world and they were supposed to make God known to the world. In the Old Testament, it says, God selected for himself a nation so that he would make himself known to them, show himself strong to them so that what? The rest of the world would know who he is and would worship him. So what they were made to do, the people of God, is to be the recipients of the wonders of God and then make those wonders known to the world so that the world would know God and love God. And what was going to happen was that the Jewish people, carrying the prophecies and oracles of the Messiah who would come, would ultimately reveal the Messiah to the world, be called blessed of God, and help the whole world that were lost to God come to know Him, and all would be beautiful. That is actually the story that was meant to unfold, okay? So you with me so far? Identity and vocation. Wow, exciting. Now let's take a look where Paul goes next. So if you bring all that to the table, oh, oh, that's good, that's good. 
Verse 27. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Uh, did you catch that? That's not a nice sentence. Do you, do you know when someone does that to you? And like, oh gosh, you hold all the knowledge? You have the, the, the beautiful uh, ability to teach others? Are, are, you, are you teaching yourself too? Have you ever told your kids? I'm glad you run around telling everybody else what to do, but maybe you should tell yourself what to do. Why do you say that to somebody? Because what? They're not actually doing what they're teaching, right? That's why you say that. So, so what Paul's going to do now is he's going to say, this is who you are, who you were made to be, and this right here is who you were, uh, what you were made to do. Let's, let's take an honest look at whether you have fulfilled who you were meant to be and what you were made to do. Let's take an honest look. So you, you teach others? Do you not teach yourself? Look what he says next. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Question mark. You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Question mark. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Question mark. See, I love that. Paul's not actually saying anything here as a statement of fact. He's asking questions. So, 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 you're the awesome people of God who are made to make God known to the world. Awesome. When you were teaching the world, did you teach yourself? Because it's kind of odd. I, I look at your lives, I'm not so sure. When you told the world not to steal, were you not stealing? When you told the world not to have adulterous relationships, were you not being adulterous? When you told the world not to worship idols, were you not worshiping idols? It's just a question. Now, it's interesting that Paul would choose these three particular things to bring to the table. Because you know, we've got a massive long list of things we could have picked as far as quick little three sins, right? You say this, but do you do this? Why these three? Well, when I die and I have a conversation with Paul, I'll ask him if he intentionally chose these three inspired by the Holy Spirit to make this connection. And he might go, Renault, you, you, you made a crazy connection. It was cool, don't get me wrong. But it wasn't what I was trying to do. But it is a connection that is real. And so I'm going to go ahead and make it because it is certainly there, okay? So here we go. Whether Paul intended this or not, it is beautiful what he's done because if you can sit with an individual person, just an individual, I'm, I'm sitting now with, with Mark and he's Jewish and we're talking and I go, Mark, when you were teaching others not to steal, did you not steal? No, no, I, I, I didn't. Oh, okay, well, mark that off. And when you were telling them not to have adulterous relationships, were you not an adulterer? No, no, actually I wasn't, Renaud. I, I, I've faithful to my spouse. Oh, okay, well, check that box then. And did you not worship idols when you were teaching them not to? No, no, I, I don't worship idols. I actually worship in the synagogue. Oh, okay, well, then you're good. So we're fine. That could easily happen if you're talking to an individual, right? But when you're talking to the people of God as a whole, not so easy. Do you know why? The people of God in the Old Testament, do you know what God often called them as a people group? And when I say often, I mean like most of the time, right? Often through the prophets, what did he call them? You what people? You adulterous people. Why? Because the Jewish people, just like the Gentiles, this is not one group or the other, but the Jewish people having the oracles of God, having revelation from God, having the law of God, having God's protection, having God's rescue, seeing the tangible presence of God on a daily basis in their world and understanding who he was every time another nation had some trinket, some God, some something that would give them what they really wanted, what God wouldn't give them, what did they do? 
And they ran on off to that nation. And they, and they went and they played with them. And God would say, man, I love you with everything I am. And what are you? You are an adulterous people. So you see, if you were talking to the people group as a whole and you got here, when you were teaching others not to have adultery, were you not adulterous? As a people group, they couldn't go, no, I, I wasn't. They'd have to go, uh, yeah, we were. And what about stealing or idols? I mean, idols, are you kidding me? Do you know how often in the Old Testament, go read it, every five seconds these guys are worshiping another idol. They build cows, birds, anything they can. The second God doesn't give them what they want, or the second they're stuck somewhere in a little desert, and they're like, where were you? The second they, the, the sea doesn't part. The second anything happens they don't like, they're like, let's go, let's go build a cow. The cow will give us what we want. The reality is that you watch the Old Testament unfold, and the people of God were always running to other things to fulfill their needs. Now, let us not be quick to judge, because the people of God today do exactly the same thing. So, let, so I, I'm just saying, Paul is not trying to lump one group, throw them under the bus, and go, you guys were terrible. The rest of the people aren't. He's just saying, the people of God, if you come to God and say, what I'm going to bring to the table is, is my heritage in specific terms, in terms of how well I've done what you've called me to do. You didn't. You blew it. So if you're going to be judged on that, you're still a recipient of the wrath of God, rightly so. And what about stealing? In the Old Testament, constantly God says, you, you know that you're robbing me, Right? You're not bringing your offerings. You're not bringing your tithes. You're not giving me your lives. You're not giving me your time. You're not, you're, you're not giving me, you're not even being what I made you to be. Uh, you're out there uh, behaving ridiculously, and I've constantly got to send some rescuer to come and rescue you from your foolishness. Here were a, a people group that had every reason to get it right. And what Paul is saying here is, you, you just didn't. You just didn't. So don't bring that to the table as though that is going to set you right with God. Now look, he goes on, look at this. So he's now told them, when it comes to identity, you didn't get that right. You were an adulterous, idol-worshiping, robbing people. And how about the job you had? To make beautiful the things of God among the Gentiles. To show them the wonders of God so that they would know and love him. How did that go? Let's take a look. Verse 29, I mean 23. You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Wow. You know what God just did? I made you to be this people, set apart for me, recipients of the wonders of all that I am, so that I would reflect to the rest of the nations my wonders through you, and they, though they are lost, would be found and see me through you and fall in love with me. You were an adulterous people, worshiping idols, messing around with stuff you shouldn't, and the result of that identity completely squandered was that the Gentiles didn't not love me. No, 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 that would be terrible enough. <laughs> they hated me. And you know why they hated me? Because they watched you. That's what he just said to them. You, the carriers of the wonders of God, you blew it so badly that the people that should have fallen in love with me ended up hating who I was because they hated you so much. How terrible is that? How tragic is that? That the people of God, given every advantage, rescued from Egypt, sent to the promised land, given the law, 
given the prophets, given the judges, given the redeemers, given the rescuers, given the tangible presence of God, given the protection of God, given everything that you and I would say looking back, there is no people group on planet earth that should have had a better shot at carrying the wonders of God to the nations. And they totally squandered it. Why is Paul showing them this? Why is Paul showing us this? Remember, he's not trying to throw the Jewish people under the bus. What is he doing? He's saying it doesn't matter if you're given every advantage when you in of yourself try to do the great works of God. Do you know where it leads you? Nowhere. Nowhere. You can't do it. You blow it every time. Because given everything, it's still not enough because you in of yourself can't do it. Now look, look what he does now. He's going to go all the way now, and he's going to unravel every single thing a person could bring to God as a means by saying, I can make myself right with you and avoid being a recipient of your wrath. Look at this. Verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Wow! Sorry, I say wow a lot, but this passage is insane, right? He just went to the heart of the reality of the identity of a Jewish person during this time. Because circumcision was an outward expression of an inward reality. And it was the outward expression that made you know that you belong to God and you were God's people. So every child in the Jewish nation was circumcised because it was their parents' way of saying this child is under the covenant of God. He belongs to God. His family belongs to God. And this is what makes him a child of God, a people of God, rescued, saved, and the recipient of the wonders of God. This is what circumcision was. Do you understand? This was a big deal. And equally, the uncircumcised were a big deal. If you were uncircumcised and you did not have an outward expression of the covenant of God over your life, then that means you did not belong to God and you were a recipient of God's wrath and you were a child of wrath. And here's what Paul just said. Here's what Paul just said to them. If you are outwardly circumcised and you think that now has you belonging to God, so you can come to the table and say, I, I didn't get the law right so much and I was an adulterous people, worshiping idols and stealing from you, and the Gentiles hate you because of me, but I am circumcised, so I do belong to you. Paul said this, no, 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 no. See, circumcision was always supposed to be an outward sign of an inward reality, a reflection of what you were. It didn't make you who you were, it was simply demonstrating who you were. But what if you're not what it's demonstrating? What if, in fact, even though you say, I belong to God, you live your life in such a way that you do not belong to God because you do not live your life demonstrating that, then this circumcision that is an outward expression of the inward reality, since there is no inward reality, guess what? The circumcision is useless to bring to the table. Here, God, I'm circumcised. Yeah, I hear you. Super sad. But I ain't going to cut it. Wow, there was a lot of puns in there. Sorry about that. I really didn't mean that. It just kind of came out that way. So it happens to me on occasion. So listen to this. Listen to this. Look what he says next. This is so crazy. Look at this. Verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as 
circumcision. This is a massive paradigm shift for the Jewish mind in this time of history because the circumcision was what demonstrated the inward reality in an outward expression and made you a person of God. And what Paul just said was this, if you are circumcised but you do not obey the law, then you do not belong to God. And the person who is uncircumcised that now has the ability to obey the precepts of God, that person, though they are uncircumcised, now belong to God. Now, before you get bent out of shape, as we, pro- as we progress into the rest of Romans, we will find out that Paul is not suggesting if a Gentile obeys the letter of the law and you don't, then they get saved and you don't. So therefore, we are saved by the obedience of the letter of the law. That's not what Paul's saying at all. He's going to show us that the obedience he's talking about in the uncircumcised is an obedience from an inward reality that has been transformed by the grace and wonder of God. So it is not a obeying of the letter of the law. It is an obedience obeying by the Spirit of the law, by God Himself, okay? So we're going to get there, but just understand right now, Paul's saying, if you, the Jewish person, circumcised, and your circumcision is an outward expression that has no inward reality, then you are not a people of God. Wow. And the person who you think doesn't belong to God, they do if the inward reality is pouring out in an outward expression, even though they are uncircumcised. So now as a Jewish person, you're going, what what does this mean? And look what he says next. That's the great switch. Now he's going to take the dagger and stab it into the hearts of the legalist who is living by his heritage or by the law that he thinks he's following. Look at this. Verse 27. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. See, the Jewish people lived under the assumption that God would come with the Messiah to rescue the Jewish people, the people of God, from the oppression of the Gentile world, would rise them up so that they would rule over Jerusalem and the world, they would become greater than the Roman Empire itself, and they would be made the judges of the Gentile world. That is what they believed was going to happen. And they would take their lawfulness, their righteousness, and God's choosing of them, and they would hold it over the world and say, we get to be the judges of you because you are pagan sinners who did not have the law and did not do what God wanted you to do. And here's what he just said. You all think you're going to be the judges of the Gentiles, the uncircumcised? Do you not understand that as the Messiah has arrived and he has demonstrated to us our inability to be godly in any way, our depravity is clear because he has come, that now the circumcision that is an outward sign is no longer going to define you as a people of God, but the outward expression is going to come through an obedience of the wonders of God and the uncircumcised person that belongs to Jesus and is living in the Spirit of God is actually going to judge you now if you do not know Christ. Because remember, he's speaking to a group of Jewish people outside of the church. These are not Jewish believers. They are unbelievers. You will be judged by the very people you think you're going to judge because they know Jesus and you don't. Watch this. Look at this. Verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Here's where Paul is now beginning 
to set the foundation for what he's going to do in chapter 4, 5, and 6, and into chapter 7 and onward, where he's going to say, now that we have a clarity on our depravity, on our inability, regardless of heritage, regardless of legalism, regardless of lawfulness, regardless of system, we have a clarity that we cannot rise up to the occasion of the holiness and righteousness of God. I want you to know there is, in fact, by the Spirit, not by the letter of the law, something that has been done that is setting people free. And they now belong to God, not because of circumcision outwardly, but because of a circumcision of the heart. Wow. So he just said, using the word Jew here in the context of belonging to God. Because remember, this is not just a nation by blood. It was, by definition, if you said, I'm Jewish because I'm circumcised, you were saying what? I belong to God because I'm circumcised, right? So he's saying, you do not belong to God. You are not the people of God because of an outward circumcision. You are the people of God because of an inward circumcision. And the outward expression of being the people of God is going to be an obedience to the law of the Spirit, not a disobedience to the letter of the law. Wow. And then he finalizes with this. His praise is not from man, but from God. Whose praise is he talking about? He's talking about the person he just said, the person that is a Jew inwardly because circumcision is a matter of the heart, not an outward expression. So he's saying this person, this person who belongs to God, whether Jew or Gentile, that has an inward circumcision by the Spirit and now belongs to God, they, that group of people, will become the praise of God. Because the Jewish people originally in their uh, identity and in their purpose were supposed to carry the oracles of God, the prophecies of God, the prophecies of the Messiah to the Gentile world. And when Jesus came, they were supposed to be the group of people that lifted him up, presented him to the world and said, here is the Messiah, wait for it, that we have all been waiting for. And then they would become what? The praise of God, right? But they squandered their identity, chased after their own stuff, spiritualized uh, their own pursuits made God someone that existed for them to give them what they wanted so that they could be apart from the rest of the horrid world. And they did not carry the beauty of God to the Gentile world. And so the Gentiles hated God. And when Jesus came, when Jesus came, the Jews were not the praise of God. And he's saying, you know who's become the praise of God now? This group of people that have heart circumcision, that are mine. And they have been set apart for me to carry the gospel into the world, my oracles to the world. Wow, that's awesome. So we come to the end of this little paragraph where Paul is layering down into the expressions of our depravity, right? He's saying the best you've got to bring, your heritage, your circumcision, your, your, your laws, your purpose, your identity, bring it. Bring it to the table. Bring it. Bring it. Whatever you have, it's not, it's not going to happen. It's not going to cut it. Because you, you can't live in any of those things the way you ought. He's done it again. And so we sit here. And as the church, as we leave here, as we get ready to go out into the world, it would be enough for us to just be reminded again in chapter 2 what? That if you bring whatever you have to the table without Christ, guess what? Guess what? It doesn't matter what it is. It's not going to be able to withstand the righteousness of God, which means you will be a recipient of the wrath of God, rightly judged, you and me both. So by God's grace, 
We don't bring our righteousness to the table. We don't bring our heritage to the table. We don't bring our identity to the table. We bring Christ to the table. For he is our righteousness. He is our identity. He is our, our strength. He is our future. He is our present. He is everything to us, right? And so we could leave here again this week as we will next week because we'll still be in chapter 2 and 3. And the week after that, walking out of here going, thank goodness I know Jesus because, man, otherwise I'd be in trouble. And that would be enough. Would it not be enough? That would be enough to once again respond in worship and be grateful to God. But as always, there are so many layers to the story of God that there is more that we can extract from this that resonates with us. Does this sound familiar to you? You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people set apart for God. You are a nation belonging to Him. And you are made to carry the oracles of God, the excellencies of God, the wonders of God, the, the message of God out into the world so that those who do not know God would know Him because they watch your life in Him. Does that sound familiar? So we just said that was the identity of the people of God that He was speaking to the Jewish people. Who else does that identity belong to now? I'll give you a clue. Us! That wasn't a clue. That was just an answer, okay? We, those who know Christ, those who are called the church, we have the same identity. We are the people of God. We are the ones that are spoken of here, the, un the circumcised of heart. We are the ones who have been given the gospel. Listen, folks, we don't have just the Old Testament oracles, just the Old Testament prophecies and the realities of a coming Messiah. We have the revelation of the Messiah who has come. We have a Savior who lived, who died, and who resurrected from the dead. We have uh, Acts chapter 1, go into all the world, to Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth to carry the wonders of God. We have the New Testament saying, this is who you are. This is what you were made to do. And our story as the people of God is the same story as they had before Jesus came. I set you apart and I made you to show the world who I am so that they will love me. Listen, listen to this. I'm not making this stuff up. Peter writes, okay, to the church. So this is New Testament. This is not to the Jewish people of old. This is to us. This is to who we are. Listen to what he says. First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Listen to these words. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Wait for it. There's our identity. Now comes our purpose, our calling, our vocation. Ready? Ready? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh which war, wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the people honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, wait for it now, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Isn't that awesome? We, we the underdogs, we the people that have no business knowing God, we are given 
the same wondrous opportunity that the people of old were given. We are given the revelation of the gospel in its fullness, empowered by the Holy Spirit with the law written on our hearts. We are sent into the world to live our lives in our marriages, in our friendships, in our work relationships, when we drive on the road, when we shop at the grocery store, as we deal with our kids and as we deal with our parents, in each environment we find ourselves, in our poverty and in our wealth, in, in our sickness and in our health, we are given the opportunity to show the world what it looks like to live in the freedom of the gospel. That's what we're given. And you know what our story could be? What our story should be? Our story should be the story of the Cubs, right? There's no reason why we should win. There's no reason why we should do this well. There's no reason why, but we have been rescued by the Messiah, empowered by the Spirit, and sent into the world. We have every reason now to show the world the wonders of God. And when we do, you know what our story will be? Oh, those Gentiles, pagan crazies. And he rescued their souls, redeemed their future, restored their purpose, and they made known the wonders of God to all the world. What a story that will be. Do you know what our story could also be? And it's not a hard one to see. Because we now belong to God, <clears throat> we deserve the things of God. Oh, yes, we do. I am a child of the King. So when I pray, God gives me what I want. And as long as I do what He wants, then I will stay healthy, I will be wealthy. I will have a blessed life and all will go well for me because I belong to God. And then the world will see that the way God shows himself to them is by making himself awesome to me and making me awesome. And then the rest of the world will go, I want to be awesome like him. And then they'll want to follow God. We spiritualize the American pursuit of comfort, convenience, and happiness just like the people of old did. And you know what their story became? A tragedy where God said to them through Paul, you were made to make beautiful my name among the Gentiles and the Gentiles hate me because they watch you in your judgment and your hypocrisy and your ugliness and your, 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 your entitlements. And we cannot have that story. That cannot be our story. That would be a tragic story to have. Because Jesus is good, will we still have our eternal life? Yes, because it's not our works that affect that. It's his work. Praise God. But we will weep like babies when we find out that we had a story we could have lived and instead we squandered it for ourselves. Man, let's not do that. So what do we get to do? What do we get to extract from this beautiful passage? You and I are the people of God, given the gospel of God sent to carry the redemption of God out into a world that desperately needs to experience the love of God. And we can do that by the way we handle our marriages, our families, our friendships, our enemies, our workplaces. And don't think this is going to be easy. I have eight kids. I love them to death. They're all preteens and teens now, except for my nine-year-old who thinks he's 17, so we'll just call him a teenager. And they love Jesus and they talk back all the time. And they drive me nuts and they drive my wife nuts and then my wife drives me nuts and then I drive my wife nuts and I transcend all of that and I live at peace with God and I speak only life into my family because I know these things. I just lied to you through my teeth. 
You see, I don't do any of those things. And the reason I remind you of that is this. Just because we heard this message, just because we know these truths, it doesn't mean you're going to walk out the door now and just go, oh, I'm just going to go breeze into this and I'm going to be a people of God and I'm going to make the excellencies of God known while I'm screaming at my children. No, that's not going to roll. But what it does allow us to do, listen now, is it allows us each day to remember who we are and despite the fact that some days we blow it, that we get to say, God, I'm sorry I blew it. I don't want to live my life forgetting who I am and I want to strive once again to demonstrate an outward expression of an inward reality so that my circumcision is not something outward, but it is a, a set of things I do to demonstrate who you are. And if I blew it today, I will repent quickly and try again tomorrow. God is not expecting perfection from us. That's why he saved our souls. But he is, he is inviting us to live as a person who demonstrates who they belong to by the good works in which they endeavor to live and that that becomes the circumcision that marks us as the people of God. Let us go do that so that we might live in the freedoms of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for your extraordinary love for us and the great grace with which you have revealed to us the good news of the gospel, rescued our souls, redeemed our future, and restored our purpose, called us out as a nation, a people set apart for you, for you so that you might make yourself known through us. May we carry the excellencies of who you are into our dailiness, repent quickly when we fail, and strive diligently to live out the inward realities that we now know to be true. May we fight for your glory in the words and actions that we affect. And may that become our circumcision, an outward sign of an inward reality. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.